Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Zelensky's condemnation of Russia before the UN Security Council today, accusing Putin's military of behaving like Nazis and calling for war crimes trials along the lines of the Nuremberg Tribunal to hold Russia accountable. Joining us to investigate the ghastly evidence of the massacre of civilians emerging from towns around Kiev following the Russian retreat is Kenneth Roth, the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, one of the world's leading international human rights organizations which operates in more than 90 countries. Previously, he served as a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington, D.C., He has conducted numerous human rights investigations and missions around the world and has written extensively on a wide range of human rights abuses, devoting special attention to issues of international justice, counterterrorism, the foreign policies of the major powers, and the work of the United Nations. And he has an article at Just Security, Embracing Autocrats to Help Ukraine is a Losing Proposition. We will discuss the work Human Rights Watch is doing in Ukraine to document evidence of Russian atrocities. Then we'll go to London to speak with Taras Kuzio, a professor in the Department of Political Science, National University of Kiev, Moila Academy, non-resident fellow in the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, and associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. He is the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russia's Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. We'll discuss his article at the journal Ideology, Theory, Practice, The Nationalism in Putin's Russia that Scholars Could Not Find But Which Invaded Ukraine, and how the Russian military, like the Russian people, have been brainwashed into believing they are liberating Ukraine from the Nazis when their government leaders and soldiers are behaving like the Nazis. Then finally, we'll look into Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan's desperate fight to hold on to power now that his former patron, Pakistan's all-powerful army, has turned against him and speak with Christine Fair, who is a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistant Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and has served as a senior fellow at West Point's Combating Terrorism Center. She's the author of Fighting to the End, Pakistan's Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, and she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Kenneth Roth, who's the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, one of the world's leading international human rights organizations, which operates in more than 90 countries. Previously, he served as a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington, D.C., and he's conducted in numerous human rights investigations and missions around the world and has written extensively on a wide range of human rights abuses, devoting special attentions to issues of international justice, counterterrorism, the foreign policies of major powers, and the work of the United Nations. And he has an article of Just Security, Embracing Autocrats to Help Ukraine is a Losing Proposition. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kenneth. Thanks Roll. for having me, and Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And in speaking of the United Nations today, President Zelensky, in a virtual meeting of the UN Security Council, made a very, very powerful speech and basically describing what we're now learning about these Russian atrocities as they withdraw from these towns around Kiev. And he likened these atrocities to the Nazi war crimes and called for a Nuremberg tribunal to hold Russia to account. So Obviously, Russia is on the, on the UN Security Council and would veto, along with China, any condemnation or resolution against them. But what, what possibilities are there, do you think? There's talk now of a, of a special tribunal 
What, what do you see in the future? Well, Ian, I mean, first, it's, it's important to stress that these are war crimes. You know, that's not hyperbole. That's just fact. Um, if you, you know, rape or torture or execute a prisoner, that's a war crime. If you, you know, target a civilian structure or indiscriminately bomb a civilian neighborhood, that's a war crime. If you besiege civilians, as is going on in Mariupol, that's a war crime. So we have plenty of um, conduct that um, is criminal, that is, you know, a violation of international humanitarian law, the, the Geneva Conventions and their protocols. So that's pretty straightforward. As for a tribunal, we actually don't need a special tribunal. We don't need the UN Security Council to act because we already have the International Criminal Court. And even though Russia has never joined the court, Ukraine has given the court jurisdiction since I think 2014 to prosecute any war crime committed on Ukrainian territory. And so all of these things we just discussed can be prosecuted by the International Criminal Court. And indeed it will look, um, I mean, typically what it does is because it's already open an investigation, it's not as concerned with you know, who was the low level soldier committing this particular atrocity. Rather, it looks at who were the commanders, you know, who were either giving the orders or the alternative way, the more likely way of proving command responsibility, who was aware of these atrocities and didn't take steps to stop them. And there, the senior Kremlin officials, including Putin, are potentially vulnerable. Because at this point, you know, the entire global media has been focusing on what's what's happened in Bucha and elsewhere. So, you know, nobody can um, deny knowledge of what's happening. And um, rather than pressing to stop it, we see the Kremlin covering up, saying, oh, this is all just fake news. These are just, you know, Ukrainian actors, you know, feigning to be dead. I mean, ridiculousness, stuff that's completely contradicted by all the facts. That's the best the Kremlin can come up with. But it shows, you know, not an intention to rein in these kind of atrocities, but rather it sends a signal to say, go commit the atrocities, we'll cover up for you. And, and that, you know, is, is extremely worrisome because bad as things were in Bucha, you know, Bucha is a relatively small city of 30,000. What everybody is worried about now is Mariupol, which had 430,000 people in it. Today, probably it's reduced to about 100,000, many have fled. But you know, it has been subject to siege, indiscriminate bombardment, and increasingly Russian occupation. The Russians don't occupy the whole city, but they do control parts of the city. And we have no idea how those soldiers are behaving, and we have to fear that it is behavior comparable to what we saw in Bucha. But what we saw in Bucha, though, sort of changes the narrative in a way that prior to this, there was the bombing of the theater in Mariupol and uh, the maternity hospital all of which, of course, the Russians denied. But without, I mean, I'm not, not suggesting that there's any excuse for what they did, but in war, there are indiscriminate killings. But now, Butcher shows that these are deliberate killings. That's a difference, isn't it? Well, I mean, yes, deliberate killing is certainly very different from accidental killing. Um, but, you know, even going back to Mariupol, you know, going back to the, to the theater or the maternity hospital, um, you know, we have to look at what happened there really in light of the way the Russian military tends to operate when it encounters significant military resistance. And we've seen this in, in Grozny, the capital of Chechnya. We saw this in Syria, in, in eastern Aleppo, in eastern Ghouta, in Idlib, where um, the Russians have basically, you know, indiscriminately bombed civilians, you know, decimating Grozny, decimating eastern um, Eastern, Eastern um, Aleppo, and in, in Idlib, where Human Rights Watch did a very detailed investigation, we were able to identify 46 cases where Russian forces deliberately, precisely targeted a hospital, a school, a market, or an apartment building, these clear civilian institutions. So there is a history of you know, deliberate killing from the air that um, you know, maybe is less vivid than what we see in Bucha but it is um, comparably culpable. Well, indeed, the theater bombing in Mariupol, they had a, written on both ends of it, children in big letters. So, yes. But tell us, Kenneth Roth, about the human rights report that came out on Sunday on potential war crimes. One of them, at least, was documented on in Kharkiv on March the 13th of a a rape of a woman by Russian soldiers, and then 
going back earlier on March the 4th, there was the execution of one man in Butcher uh, and the killing of a mother and a 14-year-old daughter in another town, Moselle, a few days later. So these are obviously a couple of many, right? So yes. well, those I mean, you've cited two there. Let me let me give two others just to give your listeners a, a flavor of what the Human Rights Watch investigators found on the ground um, in Bucha, you know, which is the, the site of these many photographs. Um, we spoke there to a, a witness, you know, a woman who described how um, many of the residents of the town were rounded up. About 40 people put in the, the center of the town, made to wait for long periods. Um, the Russian soldiers were interrogating them, checking their phones, <clears throat> but five young men were forced to kneel down. Their T-shirts were lifted over their heads, and one was shot in the head and killed. And that's, you know, just one illustration, but it showed that this was going on, you know, quite early in the Russian occupation. And that same woman described, you know, seeing many of the same bodies that we now are seeing in the videos. Or to cite another example, um, Bucha is, is a bit west of Kyiv. If you go a bit east of Kyiv, there's a, a small village known as Staria Bakiv. And there we spoke to a witness who described how Russian soldiers went door to door, rounded up six men, walked them off, and executed them. So, you know, this is not just Bucha, unfortunately. You know, this is a, a pattern of behavior that we're seeing in a number of the areas that had been occupied by Russian forces and, and are now been, you know, the Ukrainian forces have taken them back over. So I fear that we're gonna see more of this as, um, as the Russian troops withdraw from other areas that they had occupied. But some of the earlier reporting suggested almost You've had some sympathy for these Russian conscripts who were lied to and told that they're on a military exercise and suddenly find themselves in a shooting war. It seems like what we're learning now is a very different picture. This is systemic, and apparently this has been going on ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, particularly in, in rural villages out of the way. Russian soldiers come in, steal the food, steal all the valuable possessions, steal cars, phones, and rape and murder. And obviously it's less so in the cities because there's more documentation. But it sounds like this has been going on since day one, and maybe we've got the wrong picture here. Maybe there have been a bunch of kids that were lied to and, uh, and basically want to lay down their arms. But you also have a lot of evidence that this is a pretty brutal army and I know that the induction in the Russian military is absolutely horrendous, the way they haze these re recruits and brutalize them. Well, Ian, I, you know, I think you're describing two different characterizations that, that may not be inconsistent. In other words, you're describing a military that is in much less organized and much less disciplined than it should be, given you know, its size and the, given the amount of money that the Kremlin has put into it. But we've seen, you know, huge problems with logistics. So, you know, why are soldiers going door to door, you know, looking for basic food items or the like? You know, it's because they haven't been supplied with them. Um, in Bucha, we found that, you know, the, the Russian military tactics, which have been pretty plotting and very vulnerable to counterattack by, by the much more mobile and more motivated Ukrainian forces, um, a number of the armored vehicles were you know, destroyed. Clearly, there was loss of life among the Russian soldiers. And in a situation where there's a lack of discipline, where commanders are not insisting on respect for international humanitarian law, um, soldiers tend to react to this kind of you know, hardship by lashing out at the local population. I mean, that's almost predictable, which is why you need commanders to impose discipline, to say this is not permitted. But if anything, the signal from the top you know, going back to Grozny, going back to Syria, um, is that these kind of atrocities are permissible. That if you even look at the bombing campaigns, you know, yes, the military campaign's not going well, so Russian forces are just bombing, you know, Kharkiv or, or Mariupol and, and largely destroying these cities. So when, you know, the leadership at the highest level is engaged in these kinds of war crimes, it's no surprise that the lower level soldiers feel that they've got license to do something comparable um, at their level. Well, among the people that need to be held accountable, and by the way, Kenneth Roth, I don't know how there's going to be any kind of resolution in terms of dealing with the leadership in Russia. 
who have been sanctioned, Putin and Lavrov have been sanctioned, but now with President uh, Biden making it clear that he thinks Putin's a war criminal and a thug and a brute, I don't see how he can ever sit down with this guy. And, and of course, the Russians believe that the Ukrainians are just puppets of the United States, so they don't even negotiate with, uh, with Zelensky. They're pretending to in, in Turkey. So, I mean, how do you sit down with war criminals? That in itself is pretty tough, isn't it? Well, look, there's no rule that says you cannot negotiate an end to a war with a war criminal. You know, you do what you have to do. But negotiating an end to the war does not provide immunity. You know, it's not an amnesty. So these people can still be prosecuted. Now, you know, it probably is the case that Putin is sitting there in the Kremlin saying, how are they going to get me? I've got, you know, I've got nuclear weapons. Um, I'm, I'm safe. But, you know, that's a strategy that is basically a president for life strategy. He may or may not be president for life. It's very hard to guarantee being president for life. And what we've seen is that, you know, other presidents who embarked on a comparable path of atrocities, thinking that they would stay president forever, ended up in the dock. So I have in mind people like former Yugoslav president Slobodan Milosevic, who oversaw widespread ethnic cleansing in Bosnia, you know, agreed to the Dayton Peace Accord, um, didn't even bother asking for an amnesty, thought he was safe, but he lost power and the new Serbian government came in, wanted to join the European Union, show that it was reformist, so they handed Milosevic off to The Hague and he actually died on trial in The Hague. Or there's somebody like, you know, former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir, um, indicted for genocide in Darfur, he's now in custody in Khartoum. Or former Liberian President Charles Taylor, who you know, fled to Nigeria, thought he would comfortably retire there in a villa, but the politics changed and he was sent off and was convicted in The Hague. So you just never know. I mean, if you are president for life, you may be able to avoid justice, but it's hard to stay president for life. And in those circumstances, it's hard necessarily to avoid the prospect of being handed over to a tribunal, particularly if, you know, say in the case of Russia, it's gonna be eager to get out from under these devastating sanctions that have been imposed. Well, what we're learning from the liberation of these cities or from the Russian withdrawal from these towns around Kiev is that the Russian soldiers uh, keep asking the Ukrainian villages, where are the Nazis? They even talk about Banderites, referring to the Ukrainian nationalists uh, who fought with the Germans in World War II. I mean, this leads me to this question of propaganda and how my understanding is that Putin is more popular than ever in Russia, that because of his absolute control of the media, it's as though it's very similar to the kind of war euphoria we had here in the United States with the initial invasion of Iraq and the toppling of Saddam's statue. So that seems to be what's going on. So it would lead me to, if there's a war crimes trial, you know, if you can't get Hitler, at least can you put Goebbels on trial? Well, I think you're right to note that the Kremlin has built a very closed information environment in Russia. In Russia. And so, you know, most Russians get their information from state TV, which is complete propaganda and disinformation. And so, I mean, yes, indeed, I'm sure many of the soldiers thought that they were coming in to you know, denazify Ukraine and, um, and save the people of eastern Ukraine, the Donbass, from, from ongoing genocide. You know, that's the standard line on Russian TV having nothing to do with reality. Um, that, you know, dehumanization of the Ukrainian people undoubtedly does help to lay the groundwork, the foundation for atrocities of this sort. You know, if you want to talk in comparable terms, it's what, you know, the, the genocidal government in Rwanda would refer as, as cockroaches, you know, to, to the Tutsi population there, which in turn was slaughtered. So there is, you know, always an effort to dehumanize the enemy, and that can be a prelude to large-scale atrocities. So just in the last couple of minutes, the uh, European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen, is heading to Kiev uh, later this week, along with uh, the top EU diplomat, Joseph Borrell. And you at Human Rights Watch are continuing to gather data and document these war crimes that, of course, more and more will be uncovered. It seems like the war crimes are happening right across all the occupied parts of Ukraine. You'd have to ex assume that. So how do you see this thing working out in terms of, of course, we don't know what the end end of this thing will be, but what's the process that you're undergoing just in the last minute, uh, Ken? 
Well, I mean, Human Rights Watch has investigators on the ground who are continuing to document these war crimes, you know, both by taking testimonies of, of witnesses and survivors, corroborating those testimonies where we can with videos scraped from social media, you know, using satellite imagery. We're bringing in everything we have. And when these, you know, cases are proven, we release them to the public, you know, as, as we've just done in the case of Buchan and Staria Bakif and others. Um, it's important for the public to know. Um, this is, you know, I, frankly, I'm, I'm not convinced that the Russian people want these kind of atrocities committed in their name. Certainly, this generates, you know, intensified pressure on the Kremlin to stop these atrocities. And, you know, will this lead to a, a quicker peace, you know, some some end to these kind of uh, this, this kind of killing? I don't know. But it is important, you know, certainly as a matter of truth and, and as a matter of the prospect for justice, that we continue to um, make this information available as we receive it about, you know, any kind of war crime that is committed in Ukraine. Well, apparently, just in closing, the satellite data is key, isn't it? Uh, because the Russians are denying uh, what they did in Bukov, but uh, apparently it's the satellite data can actually pinpoint when uh, these killings took place. Yeah, in, in, the, in the case of Bucha, um, it happened to be that a number of the bodies that were just left along the main street were left there for, for several days, and the satellite could see them. And so we could actually show that these killings took place while the area was occupied by Russian forces. And it wasn't just manufactured after the Russian forces left. But of course, you know, many atrocities take place, you know, within buildings or, you know, under cloud cover. So you can't count on satellite imagery for everything. Um, people do take videos and they post them on social media. Those can be faked, but they are, again, useful evidence if you can authenticate and corroborate them. And then there's, you know, the old fashioned talking to people who were there, taking their testimony and trying to get multiple witnesses and corroborate, you know, their accounts of what happened. But there are plenty of ways to demonstrate these war crimes. It's important that this effort continue. Well, Kenneth Roth, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me again. And again, I've been speaking with Kenneth Roth, who's Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, one of the world's leading international human rights organizations, which operates in more than 90 countries. Previously, he served as a federal prosecutor in New York and for the Iran-Contra investigation in Washington, D.C., and has conducted numerous human rights investigations and missions around the world and has written extensively on a wide array of human rights abuses, devoting special attention to issues of international justice, counterterrorism, the foreign policies of major powers, and the work of the United Nations. And he has an article, Adjust Security, Embracing Autocrats to Help Ukraine is a Losing Proposition. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how the Russian military, like the Russian people, have been brainwashed into believing they are liberating Ukraine from the Nazis when their government soldiers and leaders are behaving like the Nazis. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Taras Kuzio, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy and a non-resident fellow in the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. He's also the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. And he has an article in the journal Ideology, Theory, Practice, the nationalism in Putin's Russia that scholars could not find but which invaded Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Taras Kuzio. Good evening or good afternoon. Well, thanks for joining us. And President Zelensky made a very powerful speech before the United Nations Security Council today. He compared what the Russians are doing now that we have had these villages occupied by the Russians evacuated and now at least uh, 410 bodies have been found showing signs of being bound and tortured and and executed. President uh, Zelensky told the UN Security Council that Russian atrocities are, are similar to the, the Nazi war crimes. He called for a Nuremberg kind of tribunal to hold Russia or Moscow accountable uh, and went on to say they shot and killed women outside their houses, they killed entire families, adults and children, they cut off limbs, slashed throats, raped women in front of their children. So who are the Nazis here? It, this, has, this has particular relevance coming from Zelensky because he's the grandson of, of, um, of, his, of his grandfather, obviously, whose three brothers 
were murdered um, in the Holocaust. So his family um, has a, a history which, you know, is linked to suffering at the hands of the Nazis during World War II. Um, and he is not in any way some kind of crazy, you know, a nationalist. He, he, was, he came to power as a centrist and quite ready to undertake compromises to achieve peace in the, the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. So I think his speech t describing and comparing these war crimes within the context of the Holocaust has both personal relevance for him and, of course, um, it is reality. Um, we have seen this in Europe once before, in Srebrenica this, and in Yugoslavia, these kinds of crimes. We were then told that never again, but here we are. Um, and I think one of the most disgusting aspects of all of this, besides, of course, the things you've mentioned of what took place, is the discourse and the rhetoric coming out of Moscow. We are hearing discourse and rhetoric, which is without any question um, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a rank of uh, fascist. Um, they are using discourse and rhetoric to basically say, we are going to wipe Ukrainians from the face of the earth. These are the kind of things that are published. Former President Medvedev, um, he was president of Russia between 2008 and 2012, He's now deputy head of the Russian Security Council, published an article today which basically said that. Um, I mean, it, if somebody had said something like that in a Western democracy, they would be immediately labeled as a fascist. But this is the kind of dehumanizing discourse and rhetoric coming out, which then feeds into a justification on the part of troops to loot, to rape and to murder because they're hearing that Ukrainians are uh, not human, they're Nazis, they're not human, from their political and military leaders. Well, Putin has the entire, or most of Russia in a, in a propaganda bubble. The only equivalent would be if here in the United States, the only news outlet we had was Fox News. So you have this capture of the Russian people with all, and they've yes. been indoctrinated and brainwashed with all this propaganda about liberating Ukraine from the Nazis, but it also applies to the soldiers. I mean, that's apparently what we're learning as they've evacuated these villages or the, the Ukrainian villages are saying troops come around looking for Nazis. And they even uh, referred to the search for Banderites, which is a reference to the Ukrainian nationalist the Germans uh, fought with during World War Two. Yes. So. I mean, there have been so many reports about poor morale on the part of the Russians that somehow they got deluded and they thought they were told they were going on a military exercise and the, these conscripts are defecting. It seems uh, that there's another side to this story, that they're also being indoctrinated with all of this brutality. And yes. this is the behavior of the Nazis. Uh, this is a fascist regime. Yes, um, I think the way to explain it uh, to your listeners is by comparing it in this sense to Nazi Germany after World War II, which went through um, a process of denazification, which lasted decades, um, which got all of this brainwashed material that was in the heads of Germans out of their heads, in effect. But this takes time. It takes, and it was under a German, uh, under a Western um, allied occupation for, at the beginning as well. Now, the difference between Ukraine and Russia um, since the early 1990s when the USSR collapsed is that Ukraine for over 30 years has been undertaking this similar kind of process of decommunization, de-Stalinization. It was undertaken quite slowly during the first few decades. Um, and then from 2000, after 2014, when Russia invaded and annexed Crimea and launched military aggression, it speeded up. Now, in Russia, that never happened. Um, in Russia, they did have, uh, it did begin under Gorbachev in the late 1980s at the same time as in Ukraine. But by the kind of mid-1990s, it was over in Russia. And since the mid-1990s, prior to Putin, and then, of course, especially with Putin from the year 2000, um, what you've had is a re-Sovietization of, of Russia, 
re-Stalinization of Russia. I mean, could you imagine uh, Germany three decades after World War II, where Adolf Hitler had um, was loved by a majority of Germans? I mean, we would be really shocked if that was true. But today, three decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a majority of Russians have a fondness for Joseph Stalin. And the only reason that's happened is because they didn't go through that decommunization and because Putin has fanned a cult of Joseph Stalin as this great leader who won World War II. Um, but of course, in the in the process of, of praising Joseph Stalin, he's hiding and marginalizing all of his crimes at the same time. So um, that's one aspect of why it's like this. Secondly, the country's a mafia state. I mean, it was called by a Spanish judge um, who was a leading mafia investigator in Spain back in 2010 already as a mafia state. So this is a, a, a kleptocratic mafia state, which means that everything's affected. It's not just politics, it's the military and everyday life. People are people are themselves dehumanized by the regime in, in, in Russia. And that that leads to a, a lack of kind of uh, empathy for human life. It leads to a description that Ukrainians who oppose Russia are all Nazis. This has nothing to do with what we understand in the West as being a Nazi, you know, somebody on the far right. Uh, this is anybody who opposes Russia's influence in Ukraine is a Nazi. And thirdly, um, just thievery. Um, the uh, just the amount of looting, the huge amount of looting taking place um, and these products being taken to Belarus and then there from there they shipped back home. Uh, I saw a photograph today of a Russian lieutenant who was captured by Ukrainian forces and his bag was literally full of looted goods, I, you know, iPhones, watches, money, jewelry, you name it. This is this is not an army. This is a, a band of pirates and criminals. Uh, I wrote an op-ed in yesterday's Daily Telegraph where, where I said that the Russian army should be declared to be a criminal structure. This is not an army. Um, this is a, a, an organization that's involved in, um, in war crimes, looting, and rape. Um, one of the most hor horrific photographs I saw, which has haunted me all day today, was a photograph of a three-year-old girl who had been raped and murdered with her, along with her family. Um, I don't know what what do you what do you say about people who do that kind of thing? I mean, they they have no right to live. They they should be literally put at some trial like Nuremberg and put to the to death. I just don't understand how they can do that kind of thing. But this is what Putin's unleashed, and it's. It cannot be divorced from the political and imperialistic and dehumanizing rhetoric that has been coming out of Moscow for over a decade, in particular after he came back to power in 2012. And again, I'm speaking with Taras Kuzio, who's in the UK, where he's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev's Mohyla Academy and a non-resident fellow in the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and Associate Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. He's the author and editor of <clears throat> 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. And he has an article at the journal Ideology, Theory, Practice, The Nationalism in Putin's Russia that scholars could not find but which invaded Ukraine. So let's talk a little bit about that article. And again, you mentioned earlier, Taras Kuzia, the uh, former prime minister and president, Medvedev, what he's recently written, he has the attitude as Putin does, and as the Russian people have been brainwashed with, that Ukraine is a puppet of the United States. Yes. And he more or less said, you know, why should we talk with Zelensky? We need to talk with Biden. But Biden has made it clear that I think I don't think there's any going back with Biden. He's more or less saying, I don't want to deal with Putin. He's a war criminal. He's a mass murderer. He's a thug. He's a brute. So what's going on in, on that level, do you think, where the U.S. is basically 
saying they don't want to deal with Putin, and they've sanctioned both Putin and Lavrov. And yet on the Russian side, they're basically saying that we can't deal with Zelensky. We want to talk to the people who are pulling the strings, which is the U.S. So it's an impasse, isn't it? Well, it is, because I don't think we've ever had in um, in um, European history um, a situation where the leaders of a great power, of a big power like Russia, are in effect war criminals, and they are running a terrorist criminal state. This is pretty unique. Um, so I'm not surprised that different political leaders are fumbling around uh, trying to figure out how to deal with this quite new phenomena. This isn't this isn't this isn't isn't typical. Um, now some of this is partly that the Western leaders have got egg on their face because. It's not as though Putin just suddenly became a war criminal. I mean, he's been a sociopathic um, uh, criminal throughout his presidency. He came to power in 2000, um, a year after um, the Russian secret police, the FSB, bombed apartment blocks in Russia, killing 300 people, which was blamed on the Chechens and used as an excuse to relaunch the war of, against the Chechen um, separatists. That war in itself murdered something like 200,000 people in Chechnya. But then, of course, we've got um, Georgia. Then we've got Syria in particular, where Russia assisted Assad's criminal regime in chemical and other forms of attacks against uh, civilians. So this is partly the West's fault. The West has not wanted to confront Russia or Russian leaders, sorry, uh, as war criminals until now. Um, it does show to some degree some hypocrisy. You know, is it okay to for Russia to bomb Muslims in Syria, but not okay to bomb Christians in Ukraine? I'm sure there are some people asking that in the Middle East. Um, President Obama, um, of course, his red lines in Syria have become a standing joke. Um, so, yes, thankfully, the West has woken up. Thankfully, now the West has finally decided this is one step too far. Um, but uh, Russia has taken this terrible step of invading Ukraine based on miscalculations about previous experience dealing with the West. Russia expected Western sanctions to be as weak and the West to be as divided as it was in 2014. Russia was mistaken in the, on this occasion, um, but it went to war in Ukraine based on that miscalculation that the West itself sent to Russia when it, it really introduced pretty pathetic um, sanctions in 2014, when Russia was the first country since World War II to annex a neighbor's territory. Um, so uh, where do we go now? Um, well, there, of course, immediately people will tell you there are, there are major problems. Neither the U.S., all Russia are members of the ICC, the International Criminal Court. I'm not a lawyer, but but people who, who are lawyers say, well, that doesn't necessarily matter. You can create a special tribunal which can try these crimes in. Obviously, they would be in absentia um, because no Russian leaders would ever be sent to The Hague, as it were. It wouldn't be like from Yugoslavia, which were, which did send Serbian war criminals and Croatian war criminals to The Hague. So they could be down the road, potentially some some um, some trials in absentia of Russian leaders. This this means that it would rule out in the future any Western leaders having anything to do with Russian leaders. I mean, one couldn't imagine, for example, summits anymore. How can you have a summit with a war criminal? You can't have uh, Russia joining or attending things like the G7 meeting. Um, Russia is completely um, isolated. And if there's an indictment that comes out of some kind of trial, then, of course, Putin can't travel. Russian leaders can't travel. And it won't be just Putin, by the way. Um, it, we, we, you know, any trial will have to deal with the fact there's a large number of people around him. The head of the army, the head of the intelligence service, the National Security Council, all of these um, are complicit in this in this war crime. Um, so uh, I think the ramifications of describing Putin and his uh, his entourage as war criminals are 
extremely profound. And we, I think, will be learning on the job as to how to deal with it. Well, just in closing, I've always been struck with the enormous problem that we face with Putin's Russia in as much as it's a, a new phenomenon in geopolitics to have the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And you more or less suggested that that's the situation as a mafia state. I just don't know how you deal with that situation. And now, of course, as your article made clear, the influence that Putin has with these ultra-nationalists like Dugin and uh, Ivan uh, Ilyin, the fascist, who did Putin actually personally pay for the reinterment of Ilyin? Yes, yes. This, this was um, this was a process which began around the time of the Orange Revolution in 2004-2005, the bringing back to Russia of white Russian emigres. Uh, these are emigres who supported the anti-Bolshevik resistance during the R Russian Civil War, um, bringing back um, the bodies, uh, the remains of writers and generals and military leaders. And but the most important aspect of all of this is that the their writings became more influential. So what you had was the integration of, um, on the one hand, Tsarist imperial nationalistic thought, because the white Russian emigres were were products of that Tsarist empire. Um, they were fro as, like all emigres, they were frozen in time, um, and uh, these and that Tsarist. Tsarist uh, imperial and white Russian emigres, these are um, people who always denied the existence of Ukraine and a separate Ukrainian people. And then that was integrated with the revival of Soviet um, ideology, which was part of this re-Sovietization of Russia, which focused on uh, making the great patriotic war a religious cult. Linked to that was a revival of Stalin, as a, as, a, as a national hero. Um, and part and parcel of that is this, you know, fight against Nazism. It's a perennial fight against Nazis. Now, these are not Nazis as we understand them on the far right. These are any, in the Soviet Union and in contemporary Russia, anybody who's a Nazi or a fascist is somebody who does not want to be part of Putin's Russian world. That's anybody. Um, and so if you supported the Orange Revolution and you were a social democrat, you're a fascist. Um, and, and, and hence, what Putin, when Putin talks about denazification of Ukraine, he's talking about of eradicating that Ukrainian national identity, which is pro-Western, pro-European, um, and replacing it with a, a little Russian identity and making Ukraine into a second Belarus. This is his fantasy world. Now, I think it's impossible. Sadly, it will he will try, and that will lead to many more deaths. But it's impossible for him to do that. How can you, how can you um, simply eradicate a national identity that's been cultivated over thirty years um, in an independent state? It's simply impossible. And worse still for Putin, his military aggression and his invasion have strengthened that identity. <laughs> they haven't weakened it. So today in Ukraine, there is no more anybody who's pro-Russian, which is not surprising, is it, really? No. And, 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 that, and, and that's a product of Putin. So ironically, the goals that he's set for himself are simply made impossible by his own actions. Well, Taras Kuzio, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I mean, speaking with Taras Kuzio, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev Mohila Academy and a non-resident fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute in the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and associate research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. And he's the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and, and the Russian-Ukrainian War. And he has an article in the journal, Ideology, Theory, Practice, The Nationalism in Putin's Russia That Scholars Could Not Find But Which Invaded Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan is desperately trying to hold on to power now that his former patron, Pakistan's all-powerful army, has turned against him.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christine Fair, who is a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University at Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul, and is the author of Fighting to the End, the Pakistan Army's Way of War, and in their own words, Understanding Lashkar-e-Taiba, and she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christine Fair. Thank you for having me again. Well, thanks for joining us. And it looks as though Prime Minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, has dodged a bullet. Apparently, he recognized that the opposition had had enough votes for a no-confidence vote in the Pakistan parliament. And then he had his ally in the parliamentary leadership rule the motion unconstitutional. And then another ally, the Pakistan's president, followed... Khan's instructions to dissolve the parliament and that dissolution, of course, triggers a new election to be held within 90 days. So how would you rate his uh, fate? Not so, well, first of all, not so fast. Um, so there's a lot of questions about the constitutionality of this. One of the reasons why they were able to uh, skirt the no confidence vote was that they invoked a particular piece of the Pakistani constitution because he claimed that his uh, downfall was actually part of a Western conspiracy. So it now goes to the courts. And, you know, the courts right now, boy, it, it's kind of hard to predict which way the courts are going to go. The, the courts, you know, for the last more than a decade have generally taken the preferences of the military in these sorts of issues and have acted on them. And what's clear is that Khan lost the support of the military over the last several years, but over the course of the last year in particular. So um, if the court rules that these shenanigans is in fact illegal, the National Assembly will in fact be reconstituted and the no confidence vote will, will go forward. No matter what happens, there will be political instability, right? So if uh, the court rules that the National Assembly should be reassembled and that the no-confidence vote should go forward, if the opposition basically um, unseats him, the opposition will, of course, form the government. Khan has a lot of street power. You know, the so-called, they call them youthias, um, which is not entirely a flattering word, um, but he has a lot of ability to mobilize street power that will make governing by this opposition for the brief remainder of this term very challenging. If he somehow sneaks by this no-confidence vote and continues to fin- finish out his term, the opposition, with the support of the military, will also have a lot of street power that will you know, basically continue to immiserate Pakistan. And if the court uh, decides that his shenanigans were in fact legal and uh, fresh elections are going to be held, well, that's going to be another set of challenges yet altogether. So there's, there's really no outcome for Pakistan following this, this move that's really going to be settling. So apart from Pakistan's double-digit inflation and high unemployment, I, you mentioned that he had a falling out with the military. The military's relationship with Khan had deteriorated uh, since 2021. He tried yep. to retain his ally as the head of the ISI, did he not? The Inter-Service Intelligence Directorate. Was that what alienated him from well, his previous sponsors because so, he's always been in the pocket of the military. 
yeah, oh, he's been in the pocket for a long time. So that was that was exactly the precipitant. And um, the head of the, the ISI that he wanted to retain is widely regarded as the person who orchestrated his electoral victory in 2018. And you would, if you were Khan, want to have a, a loyal asset like that in the subsequent election, right? Because, you know, he's a he's a proven um, he's a proven orchestrator of electoral victories. And then I think some of the so that was obviously huge. The army chief really doesn't like prime ministers, even though it is their constitutional right to exercise that sort of influence in the selection of 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 senior generals. This is something that the army chief likes to dictate. The other matters that were increasingly antagonistic is that, you know, Khan, so when Khan first floated this party, right, he didn't want to be a tool of the military. He could have been prime minister much, much earlier if he would have played along with the military, allowed the military to do for him what it did in 2018, right? So once he became the prime minister, he really began believing his own rhetoric, that he was indispensable, that he, this was, he called it Anaya Pakistan, the new Pakistan. And, you know, he, he does have a lot of committed followers that kind of gave him the illusion that he's a legitimate prime minister. (laughs) You know, the army every once in a while, um, has this problem with prime ministers that it foists the power is that, you know, it, it has to remind them of, of who the real power is. So as this chasm between Khan and the military began to widen, he began playing some of the songs that his base really liked to hear. And, and he's a populist. So he really cranked up the anti-U.S., anti-India rhetoric you knew he was up to some sort of shenanigan uh, last week when he began saying that the United States wanted to have uh, wanted to execute a regime change in Pakistan. And so he was floating this balloon to see if people believed it. And so ultimately, this was spun into a Western conspiracy to undo him. And, and that was the legal, the ostensible legal mechanism for this maneuver that will now be before the court. The other thing that he did is he supported, I mean, Khan, he supported Russia um, in Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He was actually in Russia when the invasion began. Bajwa, the army chief, in contrast, thought that um, Russia is very dangerous and that it had to be stopped in prosecuting its war in the Ukraine. So. It, yeah, it, it probably the biggest fallout was Khan's efforts to retain the ISI chief that he wanted, but that that wasn't the only thing. And when the different opposition parties saw that there was this this light forming between Khan and the military, this also mobilized them to act. So it, as much as is, this is due to Khan's own enamoration with himself and his folly. We also have to give credit to the different opposition parties who have overcome their considerable private interests to come together and try to take down Khan. So we're going to see what happens in the courts, but I guarantee you this, there's not going to be peace on Pakistan streets, no matter what happens in the high court. And Khan also, along with visiting Moscow on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine, Pakistan abstained in the General Assembly resolution denouncing the invasion. And as you mentioned, the Pavel Army Chief of Staff, I don't know whether this is part of the conspiracy theory that the U.S. is behind the coup, which is what Khan is saying. But the Army Chief did say, quote, we share a long and excellent strategic relationship with the U.S., which remains our largest export market. And he went on to say yeah. that Russia's aggression against a smaller country cannot be condoned. So what is the the story there? Because the U.S. apparently is wanting Pakistan's help in setting up its monitoring system that it lost in Afghanistan so that they can monitor what's going on inside Afghanistan. Yeah, so, I mean, that's another, another fission point, right? So Khan opposed it. Um, the military 
really saw dollar signs and the military was willing to make itself useful to the United States as long as it benefited the military. So that was a that was another fission point. There is a larger, more interesting question about the Russian-Pakistan relationship. So as the United States and India have been trying to you know, forge some semblance of a relationship, which has had a lot of ups and downs. But, you know, over the last 20 some odd years, overall, the the slope of that line is generally positive, um, even though in any given year, it, there may have been retrenchments from a generally upward trend. Russia uh, also began to reassess its relationship with Pakistan. You know, it, it came out of the 80s, <laughs> not on good terms with Pakistan, because Pakistan was key to uh, tossing the, the Russians or driving the Russians out of Afghanistan. Then when the Soviet Union uh, you know, uh, dissolved, Pakistan and India, among others, jostled for influence in the, the newly independent Central Asian state. And there was a period when Russia thought it could rework its relationship with Pakistan. But the problem is that Pakistan became very vigorous in supporting Islamist terrorism, which you'll recall was something that Russia was very worried about during the Taliban's original regime. And this was something that would rear its head in Dagestan, um, among other places, Chechnya. So the the Russians really backed away from this rapprochement with Pakistan. Then in, I would say, probably since about 2004, the two countries have had a very, oh, I'm not sure what the word is, a, a kind of delicately orchestrated dance. They have done military exercises together. Russia, along with China, um, are two of Pakistan's most important partners in the architecture of the current Taliban regime. And um, their their ties were also on a generally upward trajectory until this invasion of Ukraine, which puts Pakistan in, in, a, in an awkward position with the, the army chief really wanting to side with the United States, Khan wanting to take China's line and side with the Russians. So there, you know, this, this was a, um, you know, this is probably a, a year-long breakup in the making between Khan and the military. But the larger questions that come out uh, about the role of the Pakistan military and Pakistan's political affairs, this is yet just a, will be another instantiation of them. The questions about um, Pakistan's relationship with China, Pakistan's relationship with the United States and with Russia, you know, these are all things that that are important drivers in this this drama that are currently playing out in Islamabad. And just in closing, of course, uh, India supports Russia, or at least they haven't uh, come out against <sighs> yeah. the Russian invasion. So that's yeah. a whole other I mean, subject. But, I mean, <laughs> well, I mean, so I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've always been a cynic about the ju- the various justifications in the the U.S. India relationship. One of the arguments early on is that India would be able to avail of U.S. weapon systems, that it would wean itself off of its near dependence upon Russian weapon systems. That hasn't happened. Russia remains the top weapon supplier to India. So one of the biggest reasons for the Indo-U.S. nuclear deal, if you'll recall, was supposed to be that India would be able to trust the United States more that um, it would be able to buy our weapon systems confidently without fearing a policy change that would deprive it of access to lifetime spares and lifetime maintenance by the manufacturer. And which, you know, quite frankly, India learned from looking at what happened to Pakistan uh, over the F-16s in the 1990s. So India didn't want to become dependent upon the United States and, and weapons 
only to have some policy shift and, and then India would not be able to maintain those weapon systems. So in fact, India has not done what everyone promised it would do, which is become independent of those Russian weapons. And in, and now we find India in a place where it's, well, I mean, it, it, it's, I mean, it, it's quite frankly, openly supporting Russia. Uh, it also abstained from the vote um, in the, the UN. But India has also made it very clear that India is not in a position to condemn Russia because of its dependence upon these weapons. And, you know, I, I don't know if India is going to pay a price for this ultimately. Um, everyone generally understands India's predicament. Everyone understands that if they put pressure on India, um, India will respond um, truculently. But I'm of the view, you know, it, at some point, I mean, what are we expecting from India? Uh, I just wish policymakers would be a little bit more clear to the to the American taxpayer. Like, why are we having this relationship if whenever an opportunity for India to side with the United States comes up, India opts not to? Right. And then, you know, India constantly talks about wanting to be on the U.N. Security Council. Well, um, if India is not going to be, a, you know, a constructive partner in in keeping the international order and the international peace, what would India do on some kind of rehabilitated UN Security Council that's more representative of the global distribution of power? Is it just going to abstain all the time? So uh, there, India, within India, has a lot of critics um, about what it's currently doing and its failure to condemn Russia. But, you know, there are a lot of leftists in India who think that Russia's great. And so I've I've actually been quite stunned by the so-called Indian uh, left-leaning elite who are openly siding with Putin. It's not a good look. Well, Christine Fair, I thank you very much for joining us here today. All right. Hey, thank you. Nice speaking with you as always. Thank you, Chris. And again, I've been speaking with Christine Fair, who's a professor in the Security Studies Program within Georgetown University at Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. She previously served as a political officer with the United Nations Assistance Mission to Afghanistan in Kabul and is the author of Fighting to the End, the Pakistan Army's Way of War, and in their words, Understanding Lashkar e Taiba. And she speaks and reads Hindi, Urdu, and Punjabi. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past One more light goes out in the middle.